Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Lloyd Gehring and A.N. Wilson both know the Bible inside out. Gehring is widely recognised as one of this country's leading biblical scholars, and Wilson wrote The Book of the People, How to Read the Bible. They discuss the big book, its provenance and its power, with Chair Hannah August. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, Hello, welcome uh, to this session, A Book for the People, with A.N. Wilson and Sir Lloyd Gehring. I'm Hannah August, a lecturer in the English department at Massey University. Um, I would, you will have been told a hundred times to make sure that your phones are on silent. (laughs) Um, So please do... Um, please do ensure that they are... <laughs> yeah, this is, this is what's not going to happen throughout the session. Um, please do ensure that they're either turned to silent or, um, uh, or off completely. You are encouraged to share this, uh, the session on social media, um, but please be considerate of other audience members when you do that. Um, we are going to discuss... The Bible, um, the great book uh, about which these two gentlemen have a great deal of expertise. And um, there will be time for questions at the end. Uh, I'll alert you, I've got a very useful clock in front of me um, uh, that will enable me to let you know when we'll move towards questions. And um, I think we've got some microphones around. Uh, I'll let you know how that bit works when we get to it. Um, So I would like to, just before we leap into things, introduce uh, your panellists. Andrew Wilson uh, is a novelist, columnist, historian and biographer. His fiction includes the man booker long-listed Winnie and Wolf, the five books that have become known as the Lampet Chronicles, and most recently the historical novel Resolution about the botanist who sailed with Captain Cook on his second expedition to the Southern Hemisphere. The subjects of his biographies range from Tolstoy to C.S. Lewis to Dante to Queen Victoria. He has written extensively on religion and over the past three decades has moved from publishing texts with names such as Against Religion, Why We Should Live Without It, to those such as 2015's The Book of the People, How to Read the Bible. And I'm hopeful that in this session he'll shed light on some of the reasons for that shift. Uh, We are delighted (laughs) to welcome him to this year's Auckland Writers' Festival and extremely grateful to Platinum patrons Peter and Mary Biggs for enabling his trip to New Zealand. My second... My second guest is Sir Lloyd Gehring, who over the course of nearly a century has thought and written extensively on issues of faith and religion. The New Zealand Book Council's website describes him as New Zealand's best known and most controversial commentator on theological issues. His early career in the Presbyterian ministry was followed by a long stint teaching in the Religious Studies Department at Victoria University in Wellington, where he is Professor Emeritus. 
He has been arraigned for heresy, made a knight grand companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit, and published numerous books that grapple with the role of Christianity in contemporary society. These include The World to Come from Christian Past to Global Future, Christianity Without God, and Reimagining God, The Faith Journey of a Modern Heretic. His most recent publication, Portholes to the Past, reflects on 99 years of life in New Zealand. We are both honoured and lucky to have Sir Lloyd on stage with us today. So I wanted to begin, you, can, you will have got a sense for those of you who aren't familiar uh, with the work of these two writers, um, of the fact that they have both undergone, we've debated backstage about whether to use this term, faith journey, um, but um, uh, because I think it would be useful for you to know from what standpoint they are approaching the Bible uh, in our subsequent discussion, I wonder if we could start by asking you to describe uh, the nature of this so-called faith journey and where you are today in terms of your relationship with the Bible and how you look at it as the Word of God. Starting with you, perhaps, Andrew. Oh, jolly. I don't know. I've been <laughs> on a, a journey, particularly. I've, uh, I'm a very, very wishy-washy person. I, I'm a tribal Anglican, really, I think is how I would describe my position. Um, I've moved from one wishy-washy position of faint unbelief to an even more wishy-washy position of uh, thinking that the Christian tradition is a good one and wanting to belong to it. Um, I think that's about as far as I could describe the journey. It's hardly the road to Damascus, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, I think what is wrong with the current secularism of the age, as far as I can understand it, is that it's cut us off from this enormous, rich culture which originates with the Christian understanding of the Bible. Um, the Bible in the Middle Ages in particular fascinates me. I used to teach medieval literature for seven years of my rather wasted, wishy-washy life. And um, <laughs> one of the things which strikes you if you approach the Bible from the medieval point of view is that it isn't a book that is necessarily read. It's a book that is heard set to music. It's a book it's a book which is depicted uh, in wall paintings. It's a book which is reflected in architecture. And that was one of the things that I wanted to bring to life in the book that I wrote called uh, The Book of the People, namely that the Bible isn't like the Book of Mormon, which descended miraculously all on one day uh, and was written on plates to the dictation of, I think, the Archangel Gabriel, but I forget which Archangel. And... Um, and that, that was it. And then you accepted the Book of Mormon, or you don't. The Bible is the creation, both of the people, the very many people who wrote it in several languages, but even more of the people who've heard it read and um, heard it spoken. That's, that, that's roughly <laughs> where I stand. We're going to come back to a few of those things. Yes. Um, I wonder, Lloyd, would you well, be able to... Well, faith journey, very briefly... Uh, I came from a position of unbelief into the church, and as I did so, I said to the minister, I don't have to believe all that stuff about Adam and Eve, do I? No, he says that no one believes that in the church today. Actually, he wasn't right. That some, a lot of people do. And I <laughs> proceeded from there into theological college and 
and became a minister. And what fascinated me about uh, the Bible was the, because I was brought up in a very liberal approach to the Bible. My, my teachers had all accepted the new approach uh, that arose from about 1880 onwards. And I was, I was on the, you know, right in the middle of that when I was a, a student in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, so for me, the, the Bible has always been a collection of documents uh, from the ancient world uh, written for the ancient world, not for us at all. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's, a very, it's a great misnomer to call it the word of God. Uh, it, it's the word of men and occasionally perhaps even some women, though they didn't have much of a say in those days. Uh, and uh, when it's studied that way, it's, it, it makes a, a lot of sense and, it, and, it, and it's given us the values that we have in the in Western world today, uh, I I think the uh, the real trouble is it was written so long ago that people forget it wasn't written for the 20th century. It needs a lot of interpretation to make sense of it in the, in the modern world, and that I'm afraid is not people what people are not doing. Fundamentalists. Uh, treat the Bible as if it was written in the 21st century, and of course it wasn't. So uh, our trouble is, and the, in fact the reason why the Bible is, is uh, not read today is just because of that in a way. It, um, no one reads any book that was written 2,000 years ago. We don't, I mean, people don't, can't even understand Shakespeare, which is only three or 400 years ago. <laughs> So how should they be expected to, to understand the Bible? Well, that's, that's the problem. It is a problem because I think so much of what we have, both in terms of our values, but also more nebulously, the stories going on inside our heads, for the last two or 3,000 years, if you count us all together with the Jews, um, have, has come from this collection of writings. And so it was a shared point of reference, whether it was children playing with a toy in Noah's Ark, or, or whether it was understanding when you went around an art gallery what the pictures were about, whether it was responding intelligently, if you listen to Bach's um, B minor Mass or St. Matthew Passion or whatever it may be. Uh, this was a shared thing. I was very struck. I've got three daughters, and the youngest of them is an art student at the moment. Uh, she did one of these installation things, which people have to do nowadays if they're calling themselves artists. <laughs> and um, it was, a, it was a, a sort of meditation on one of her favourite paintings in the National Gallery in London, which is Caravaggio's um, Road to Emmaus, where the, the figures are gathered around the table in this wonderful cinematic dark. Um, with light shining on the face of the mysterious stranger who's walked along the road with these two individuals uh, in the Gospel according to St. Luke. And as he breaks bread, they suddenly realise who it is. And um, she'd, she'd, she did it with a, in a rather predictable way, possibly, but don't tell her I said so, with, um, <laughs> with uh, images of her boyfriend in each of the things. And, uh, <laughs> but... Um, the point was, at the, when, the, when the students were showing all their work, every other bit of work reflected in some way or another 
an intelligent thing to which we could all respond. And they were a perfectly intelligent lot of students. They'd all read um, modern novels, and they all knew about modern drama, and they were au fait with politics and so forth. None of them got what this story was. None of them had heard it before. Mm. <laughs> Not one. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, were, they were sort of, as it were, well-educated people. And it, it just brought it home to me that nowadays somebody walking around uh, a collection of art from the Middle Ages to the, to the present day and seeing the works of Caravaggio or whoever it may be would be in the position that I am in when I go to India. And of course I look at these wonderful pictures in a Sikh temple or something of that kind, but I'm absolutely ignorant about what's going on. And we've, to that extent, we've bred up a generation or two or three generations who are completely detached from the common culture. And this is just one symptom of it. It's, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the road to Yemez. I was recently teaching a group of students The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, which, of course, invokes that particular scene also. It does. And, um, you know, a lot of our time in class was spent just letting them know what these things that were being referred to were. And um, so if you were to... Um, uh, is, is this the main reason that, if we accept that we're reading the Bible less, is this the main reason that we should be reading it more because of the access that it gives us to these other artefacts of Western culture that we're losing the ability to, to grasp the full meaning of? Well, I would certainly think so. But the trouble is, unless you respond um, from a position of knowledge, then these points of reference are a bit heavy because they, they need somebody... Um, such as you, to explain to them what the road to Emmaus is or what Noah's Ark was or uh, why a lady in blue is watching a man with wings fly through the window and waving at her. Um, <laughs> and they don't necessarily know unless you tell them. Uh, whereas the, the, the point is you, you should click immediately, just as when you read Paradise Lost and there are all the references to Homer and Virgil and the ancient Greeks. We don't, unless we've had a classical education, uh, we don't click in the way you're meant to. So we are just ge generally speaking cutting loose from the culture, uh, the shared culture. I don't think there's anything necessary we can do about it, but I would love it if, if we all could go back to understanding these shared things. Lloyd, coming from a... Um, uh, obviously, Andrew is coming from a, uh, the background of someone who also writes works of literature. I mean, from your perspective, uh, what are the reasons that we should be reading the Bible now that are not to do with the greater access that it gives us to these works of art and literature? I'm not sure that I can say that people ought to read the Bible, really. <laughs> um, you see, in 1900... Um, nearly everybody had a Bible in the house. Now it'd be rare to find a house where they got a Bible in it. And it, while I agree uh, with Andrew that it, it, it's a tragedy in many respects that the knowledge of the Bible has just disappeared from younger generations today, I'm, I'm sure none of my grandchildren ever looked at a Bible wouldn't they even know what a Bible was. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a, it's a tragedy, but I don't see any easy way of, of dealing with that tragedy. Of course, it, as, as the problem arose in the early part of the 20th century, 
People got over it by translating it into new and modern translations. I mean, I remember when Moffat translation was all the rage, and then eventually we got something a little bit closer to the authorised version, the revised standard version, and that's what's often used in, in churches still to this day. But uh, I think the day of the Bible is over. Indeed, as I think the day of... Traditional Christianity is coming fast to an end. It's a pity, but there it is. It's very hard to reverse it. So what do we lose if we don't reverse it? Well, what has survived from the Bible in many ways are the products of the other, other values that the Bible includes teaches and, and, clo and clothes in its various stories, some of them myths, some of them sort of pseudo-history, and some of them historical. Um, the values have continued. Indeed, some of those values are more dominant today than they were 100, 100 years ago. Um, we're, we're, we're more concerned with justice and honesty and, and compassion uh, than we were then. I mean, uh, Christians often showed very little compassion to one another once upon a time, but I think as we're, we're mostly all humanists of a kind today, and, and I think we value those values from the, that we've inherited from the past. So that is how the Bible and Christianity generally has survived into the 21st century. May I make an observation? Um, it may be true that in New Zealand, Christianity is dying out. It's certainly true that in Northern Europe, the number of practicing Christians is dwindling at a, a really rapid rate. Um, it doesn't seem to be the case in the United States of America, and it's certainly not the case in Africa, and it's certainly not the case uh, in South America, and it's certainly not the case in the Far East, where in Korea, for example, uh, there are millions and millions of new Christians every year. I don't know, uh, I don't know Lloyd, what, what, what you mean by saying that Christianity is going to die out when it's the, the most rapidly growing movement on the, on the planet at the moment. What, yes. what is dying out, unfortunately, is the kind of... Well, I said I'm a tribal Anglican, but the, the sort of thing that used to be regarded as reasonable religion uh, in, the 18th, in the 18th century. And what is, on the, uh, what is on the march is fundamentalism. And I think it would be nice if there could be intelligent discussion between uh, wishy-washies such as ourselves and the fundamentalists, because somewhere or another in between, I suspect we would get to a, a, a more satisfactory picture. They would have a more realistic picture of how the book which they treasure uh, came into being if they read Lloyd's books. Yes, um, and, uh, and but he might have a little bit more humility of, about understanding why these people are le leading not merely lives touched with um, the values of the Bible, but with faith, with a living faith, which you see if you watch uh, YouTube uh, of churches in Korea or in Brazil. Um, they are alive with something, and it's something rather more than our gentle espousal of nice wishy-washy values, which may or may not be in the Bible, actually. I mean, if you open the Bible, many of the Bible's values are repellent, I would think, because they're so intolerant, particularly in the um, 
writings of St. Paul, but they're fascinatingly full of what the Koreans still have and the South Americans still have and so many people in Africa still have, which is vibrant faith. Mm. Uh, you quite rightly rebuked me about the spread of uh, humanism, but because I, I, I speak as a New Zealander. Now, New Zealand is probably the most secular country in the world, the Western world, um, and uh, shows less of its attachment to its Christian past than most other. And as you say, Christianity is growing in a lot of places. But what sort of Christianity is? It's fundamentalist Christianity. Now, in my view, fundamentalism is going to be one of the great enemies of, of our human future because it, it, it presents a kind of new God to people, a God whose word is here and has got to be followed, whereas... And the same thing is happening in the Islamic world. Very much so. And so that the, the future seems to me to be a clash between two types of fundamentalism, uh, the, the Quran or the Bible. And what we need to do is to understand the, the history of, of the Bible and the history of the Quran. You see, um, in the Islamic world, no one dare even question the Quran, and Muslims who want to do so use move out of the Islamic country before they do so. They go to America. But, um, you see, trying to revive the centrality of the Bible as it was unfortunately leads to this fundamentalism, which is going to be a very serious clash, I feel. I'm afraid you're right. And I think what's happening in the world with global capitalism and migration happening at such a rate, people are losing touch with their geographical roots and their homelands. Uh, and even when they are in their own homeland, very many people feel that their homelands have been changed so much by migration that it's no longer home. So many of the things which we would associate with, with home and with our, our common culture are gone. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, what we are calling fundamentalism has occurred, because I think people don't have the reassurance of home. Instead, they look for the reassurance of their faith. And uh, undoubtedly, uh, we're seeing forms of Christianity which wouldn't really have been recognizable in the Middle Ages as Christianity at all. And certainly their ways of reading uh, the Bible would seem to snooty chaps like us very, very strange. But um, that's the thought that's growing. And as you say, Meanwhile, our friends in the Islamic world are suffering the same problems. I think, again, if you go back to the Middle Ages, which were in so many ways more enlightened than our times, and you go back to Islamic Spain, for example, all the things that we regard as the beginnings of the Renaissance and modern culture came out of Islamic Spain, including the, most of the writings of the ancient Greeks, which have been translated into Arabic and then back into Greek, mathematics, pointed arches. We wouldn't have any of it if it weren't for Islam. And I don't believe that there's no Muslim in the world who questions uh, the Quran. Though, of course, publicly, it's not a very safe thing to do. Yeah. Probably not very safe even for us to do it here. Yeah, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's change the subject. <laughs> change, changing the subject. If we, um, so if we think of fundamentalism, which obviously involves this, this literal reading of the Bible as being the wrong way to read the Bible. 
what is the right way to read the Bible? How could we, how could we be reading the Bible differently? How could these, people, these fundamentalists be reading the Bible differently in, in such a way that we would avoid some of these dangers that you've just spoken of? Well, we've got to read the Bible as a set of human documents. And as a set of human documents, it's a marvelous collection. It, I mean, it introduces us uh, to, the, to the way in which modern civilization had its seeds uh, in the past. Uh, particularly from, I mean, I happened to, happen to mention just yesterday that the first five books of the Bible were, were written in ancient Babylon. And indeed, in many ways, um, that was the beginning of modern civilization. Um, and and, it, and it, as it spread, particularly through the, its Christian version, it conquered uh, ancient so-called pagan Rome, which was from a sophisticated point of view, was much greater than what followed in the Dark Ages. Nevertheless, it gradually... And then, as, um, as, um, as, as you have rightly said, we, it met Islam. And, and it was Islam which really gave the modern strength to Christianity. Uh, and particularly Christian civilization with its, uh, I mean, uh, all our new numbering system has come from, that's why we call it the Arabic numerals, after yeah. all. Um, uh, indeed, some modern science would never have got off the ground in Europe if it hadn't been for the contribution that uh, Islam had, had given to it uh, from Spain upwards. That's true. May, may I just take up a point that... Lloyd made, because I don't think I do completely agree with him, that the Bible is only to be read as a collection of ancient documents written by mainly men um, hundreds, possibly thousands of years ago. I think one of the remarkable things about the Bible, particularly as it became a collection of books, and it, it's um, nearly all the books in the Bible are in one way or another a commentary on other books in the Bible. They're a sort of midrash. And one of the things you get from these uh, Jewish writings is that the folk tales they told one another became internalized. So, uh, one of the most obvious examples, uh, you're an English literature uh, buff, and I've no doubt had to explain this to your pupils as well as the road to Emmaus, is The Journey Through the Wilderness. Uh, George Herbert wrote this wonderful poem called A Bunch of Grapes. I'm afraid I can't quote it to you, but the the, the purport of the poem is that the journey that you read of the Jews being kicked out of, um, or rather escaping from Egypt, not being kicked out of Egypt, um, and spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness and then arriving in the Promised Land and the bunch of grapes being brought back from the Promised Land, uh, he says in the poem, this isn't a, a set of stories about some ancient people long ago of whom we know very little, uh, half to parody Mr. Chamberlain. It's instead a story about us. We are the ones. It's a story about our 40 years of life, our lifespan, in which we go on grumbling through the wilderness, making mistakes, um, erecting uh, golden calves, worshipping false gods, and eventually hoping that we will enter enlightenment or understanding in the promised land. I'm sure that's what the original... Uh, Hebrews who wrote those stories down intended by it too. And I think what we're talking about, when we talk about fundamentalism, there are people in the world whom we would call fundamentalists who would be shocked 
by George Herbert's poem and would say, but surely it must have happened in history. Well, as Lloyd knows much better than I, and he'll tell you a lot about, there are no Hebrew inscriptions in ancient Egypt. There is no evidence that that journey uh, with Moses and Aaron and uh, Caleb, the son of Jophani, and all the other <laughs> gang uh, ever marched through the desert or got to the Red Sea, just as there's no historical evidence that the seas rolled back and drowned all the Egyptians. That's not the point of the stories having been told. The point is that it's all happening inside us. And as the Bible unfolds and as the uh, literature of the Bible gets later and later and later, uh, such things as the Hebrew Psalms, for example, they're not just old bits of um, writing by men long ago uh, on papyrus. They're being sung and recited all over the world as we speak, in cathedrals and in people's private bedrooms and so forth. Because the, the Psalms, even more than the story of the journey through the wilderness, again, is a story of our own spiritual journey, with all the mistakes and all the disasters and all the heartbreak that we bring to that journey. So that I think that's why the Bible is a living book, and that is why the people whom we've rather snootily categorized as fundamentalists uh, respond to it so vividly, because they are on that journey just as we all are, whether we read the Bible or not. Um, what I would love is to have a conversation uh, in which, not me taking part because I'd be too ignorant, but, but with Lloyd, let us say, making those points to um, a really... Um, hot gospeler who, um, <laughs> who wanted to um, convert you all. I was once sent by a newspaper to um, interview Dr. Billy Graham, who I thought was an absolutely wonderful man. And he said to me at the end, Mr. Wilson, do you mind me asking you? And I said, I don't mind you asking me anything, Dr. Graham. And he said, have you ever considered giving your heart to the Lord? And I said I considered it on an almost daily basis. But my trouble was I couldn't give my head to the Lord. <laughs> and, and I think that, I think that Lloyd would, would be able to bridge that gap because it's a, an essential gap, not only in Christianity, but in general. I mean, if, if we were having a different conversation and um, one of these very reductionist scientific materialist, like Richard Dawkins was sitting in one of these chairs, we would want to say, try to escape the awful carapace of your own bigotry and fundamentalism and realize that what all this literature that we're talking about, whether biblical literature or the sort of uh, literature that you're teaching your students, such as T.S. Eliot or um, whoever it may be, uh, we are living beings and we are experiencing all kinds of strange things. And, um, I think Lloyd is quite right to say that everybody, in a certain sense, is a humanist. And the, the mystery of what it is to be a human being, um, if you haven't contemplated it in the course of your life, then you literally haven't lived. And uh, the fundamentalisms of the world, the, the trouble with them all, whether it's materialist fundamentalism or religious fundamentalism, is it tries to blind you to that fact. I think, anyway. Now, what you say prompts me to respond in this way, that... Um, if we go back a bit in history, it wasn't until about 1880 that the Bible became a fallen idol. Up until that time, it was regarded as being a wonderful resource for ancient history. But what happened was, because of Darwin's theory of evolution, 
which clashed so violently with the opening chapters of Genesis and eventually won the day, the Bible became looked upon as a fallen idol which was no longer uh, able to give us the truth about our past, our ancient past. Now, what happened was a liberal stage of biblical studies uh, followed. Between 1880 and about 1940, there were a tremendous number of commentaries written on each uh, subject of the Bible, putting it in its historical context, helping us to understand what what the books were talking about in the days that they were written. But from World War II onwards, it all began to stop. And you don't have this great burst of commentaries uh, that were done then. And it looks as if the attempt to put it into a more liberal, rational kind of understanding has failed. And and in my view, it's a great pity it's failed because I was brought up as a theological student right in the middle of that that period. Well, not in the 1880s, Lloyd. (laughs) (laughs) We know that you're a proud old man, but you're not as... I know you're proud of your old age, but you're not as old as that. (laughs) You'll be be 200 years old if that were the case. Well, that's... You see, I was fascinated with the Bible. Of course, we all are. And and that's why I I taught Old Testament studies exclusively for 16 years. Uh, And, um, and of course, taught the Hebrew language in in which it is basically written. Uh, And for that reason... You know, I, I look back with sadness to the fact that it's no longer being read today. Um, for me, the, the, the Bible uh, is, a, is a wonderful set of writings. Can I just pick you up on the, um, and we might develop in discussion, this business that you talked about, the clash between science and religion in the 19th century, which we still live with in a sort of a way, because I mentioned Richard Dawkins, but there are many people who think science in inverted commas has disproved religion in inverted commas. And um, I think one of the reasons that that clash began in the 19th century, I don't know what either of you think, was in a way the the core of what made the fundamentalist position so impossible. And it was that in the Protestant tradition, in the authorised version of the Bible, there was a man called Archbishop Usher in the 17th century. (laughs) And he wanted to work out how old the earth was and how old the human race was. And he, he was the Archbishop of Armagh um, in Dublin, in, um, in Ireland. And he, he did it in a very simple way. In the Bible, the bits which uh, Lloyd knows by heart, but many of us skip where so-and-so begets somebody and then somebody else begets somebody else. And uh, Methuselah lived 969 years and so on. You count backwards. And Archbishop Usher patiently counted backwards, uh, all the begetting and begetting, and um, he eventually reached the date on which uh, Eve adventurously decided to taste the apple, which I think I'm right in saying was October the 9th, 4004 BC. <laughs> and the, what's so astonishing, um, you remember in Paradise Lost where, he say, where Satan says, worth your laughter for an apple. So you've just demonstrated that. But, <laughs> but um, nobody who wrote those folk tales down um, in Mesopotamia, I imagine, originally. I mean, most people seem to think they were Mesopotamian folk tales which were taken up by the, 
by the Jews uh, ever supposed that they would be read in the way that we would read a scientific theory, let alone a geological theory. And it's astonishing that when you come upon the Victorians, the early Victorians, even Sir Charles Lyell, who was the real great pioneer of, uh, of geology and who taught geology at one of your old spheres of usefulness in London, the King's College, um, he had his doubts as he began whether he really should be going on with it because it contradicted what he believed to be Bible teaching. It isn't Bible teaching, it's Archbishop Usher's idiotic dating. Um, but he did worry, because of course he realized the first fossil you look at is um, millions of years older than Archbishop Usher could have conceived. But I mean, it, it's fatal. If you go into a second-hand bookshop and you see an old Bible, pre-1880, it's very often got Archbishop Usher's dates written at the top. And uh, that is what began, as you say, that the, the Bible was a fallen idol because of Archbishop Usher's dating. And the very first Bible that was given to me in the 1930s still had in it 4004 BC <laughs> at the first verse that's of the I, Bible. That's what I mean. It is extraordinary. Can I... Um, push us in a slightly different direction. I wonder what that Bible that you were given in the 1930s, what translation that was, Lloyd? I was taken, I read your book um, prior to this session, and you talk about this moment, going back to George Herbert, you talk about Simone Weil's um, moment of conversion reading a, a George Her Herbert poem, and, um, uh, and at that point it is... Uh, the language that has such a strong effect um, on the reader. And, um, and I wondered, when you were first reading the Bible and it was obviously making a strong impression on you, which translate... Were you reading oh, the, the King James oh, Version? The, oh, or you, oh, yes, the King James yeah. authorised... That, that was the only version used. For, well, there were earlier versions that died out after the Reformation, but it was the authorised version. That's why it was called authorised. It was to push all the others out. And uh, consequently, it was the royal version. And uh, it remained dominant right up until the middle of the, of the uh, 20th century. Moffat uh, was an earlier attempt to give, give it some sort of modern feel. But it, it didn't displace the authorised version. It was only the revised standard version from about um, the 1950s, I think, that uh, eventually displaced the authorised version. So, I, th I mean, what I think is interesting about that is that it, was, it was the authorised version of the King James, as some of you will know it as, um, uh, that I also grew up reading. And there is, to me, such power in that language, which is the language of Shakespeare. And you talk about people not understanding Shakespeare oh, anymore. Well. They can't understand the language of that particular translation, which I think does something specific, has a certain power that some of the later translations don't have. Oh. Is it part of losing the power in the language that has led to this fallen well, status? Yes, because the authorised version and shaped the English language. But, I mean, it was the only book that people read for a long, long time. Consequently, it shaped the way English language developed, just as Luther's version brought in yeah. the German language. It unified. German language exists in a lot of different dialects, and it was, the, it was Luther's version uh, translation that actually unified German language. It did a great thing for it, just as the authorised version did for English language. And the authorised version, incidentally, is really, in many passages, a translation not of the Hebrew or the Greek, but of Luther, because mm. it's, so, it, it, it's so full of Lutheranism. 
uh, in its interpretation. But I totally agree with both of you that um, one of the things that we were talking about earlier, the sort of dis dissolution of the culture came about with, with the arrival of all these biblical translations, which of course were done with the best will in the world, so, uh, if you're interested, uh, as Lloyd is and as scholars uh, should be, in the origins of all this stuff. Um, one wants to know what exactly did these strange individuals who wrote these books say, what did they mean? And of course, therefore, you need the best possible modern translation. But if you then abandon this sonorous and instantly memorable text, then you have dissolved the culture. And um, I think there, was a, there wasn't enough, perhaps, distinction made in schools and churches during the 60s and 70s and 80s when these translations were coming between the stuff that ought to be going on inside your head so you can internalize it, namely the old translation, whether you understand it or not, um, and the, the stuff which was really written as a study aid. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I'm watching the clock a little bit and aware that we're approaching question time uh, in about five minutes. I, I suppose I'm aware that here we are at Writers' Festival, the theme of which is love story, and I wondered if both of you would mind sharing what you consider to be one of your favourite stories from the Bible. Well, I didn't quite catch that. Oh, I, what is, do you have a favourite story from the Bible? Here we are at this festival of which the theme is love story. Is there a particular biblical oh, well, story that you love? I've no hesitation in saying the favourite book of the Bible for me is Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes is the one book of the Bible that hasn't really changed chain, uh, it, it, it's a timeless book. What it says it applies as much today as it ever did in the beginning. And the reason was, it's a, it's a book belonging to what's called the wisdom stream. There were four streams uh, that led to the, the creation of the Bible. Uh, there was the legalistic stream from Moses. There was the prophetic stream from the prophets. There was the historical stream from David, that's the Davidic stream. But there was the wisdom stream, of which Ecclesiastes is really the only good example. There, there, well, the so Song of Solomon and so on belongs to it a bit. But Now, the wisdom stream was the one stream in the Bible which was not exclusively Jewish. It belonged to a global stream of thought. And that's the reason, really, why it has lasted to this day, because it's much more humanist. It, it's not concerned with the great story of, of the Exodus and, and the people of Israel and their destiny under God, the, 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 as the God of Israel. It, that, in fact, it doesn't talk a lot about God at all. It, it talks about human problems and human life and whether there's any purpose in life and begins to question, well, perhaps there isn't any really purpose. It, perhaps it's all vanity, you see, and we're, we're living for nothing. Now, that actually, that actually gels with people's thinking today. Is life worth the candle? So this is why, you know, quite recently I made my own translation um, and published it. My booksellers tell me it didn't sell. And so, <laughs> anyway, what I did was I imagined I was going back to the time of Ecclesiastes and I have a conversation with him. And 
I, I ask him questions and use all his words to answer it. I don't use his, his words in the order they appear, uh, uh, but I use all his words. I fit them into eight chapters in which I have eight conversations with. And I find, as I did so, that um, he, he helped me to understand the modern world and, and the problems we have in the modern world. Um, so in, in that respect... I felt this book is a sort of a timeless book, unlike most of the other books in the Bible, which all have their own particular values, but this is a different value. Do you, and your timeless book might perhaps be Job from having well, read your book. I, <laughs> I, I, I find it hard to discharge Job. I think if you ask what is my very favorite story, uh, Lloyd talks about the wisdom books, and in some of the wisdom books didn't make it into the um, Protestant canon. They were in the old so-called Septuagint, the Greek Bible. And uh, there's a, there's a marvellous myth in the middle of the Book of Wisdom um, in which wisdom herself is flying over the world and she wants to find a home. And she finds it among the people of Israel. I, unlike Lloyd, I like the, the, the bits in the Bible which are about the destiny of the Jewish people. Because I think we owe them so much in this, in this collection of writings. And this, uh, this myth of wisdom, uh, looking for somewhere to be born in this world and finding the Jewish people in which to be born, um, is really a reflection of a, a much earlier folk tale, which is my favourite, I think my, certainly my favourite story in the Bible, which comes into the book of Genesis in chapter 24, when old Abraham... Uh, decides he doesn't want Isaac to marry one of the local girls in the land of Canaan. Um, and he wants, him, he wants uh, Isaac to marry, as it were, a nice Jewish girl. And, um, <laughs> of course, there weren't any Jews at that point, but it was, that's, what, that's the thinking behind the folktale. And so he sends an, an ambassador uh, back to Lloyd's old, old stamping ground in Mesopotamia, where he came from, uh, to find the, the right woman. And it's the most beautiful story. Uh, the, the man is coming through the desert. It's rather like Lawrence of Arabia, as done by David Lean. A sun is falling. <laughs> and then, unlike anything to do with Lawrence of Arabia, a beautiful woman comes into sight. <laughs> and she is leading the camels to be watered at the oasis. And it is Rebecca, who is literally the mother of Israel. And um, when she looks at the ambassador who's come, they both know immediately. I mean, it's, it's a most haunting, moving story, I think. And out of that union, of course, comes uh, Israel, which is a word which Lloyd will translate for, for us. But I mean, for many of us, it, uh, Israel means engagement with God. But some people, it even means wrestling with God, which I think is really what the Bible is about. And is, in fact, the title of Lloyd's earlier yes, autobiography. So that, that's where it comes from. <laughs> that's where it comes from. <laughs> that's why I said it. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, uh, thinking, uh, just finally, before I open it up for questions, about the, um, 
I suppose, the, the potential of the Bible to provide these, these stories. And your argument that you made right at the start about how reading the Bible isn't necessarily actually sitting down and reading this codex. Um, it, is, um, it can be the interpretations that we see through art and architecture and music. And I'm wondering, is there... I suppose I'm slightly intrigued by the way that um, cinematic adaptations of... Um, stories in the Bible never quite seem to capture <laughs> the popular imagination in the same way as, for instance, those you know mystery plays from the medieval period would have done, which in themselves were a way of reading the Bible. Very much so. Um, thinking about the time in which we're living now, are there ways that you think are, are effective for you know younger people living today to be reading the Bible that isn't well, even Cecil, sitting Well, Cecil B. DeMille was very popular in his day, and the Ten Commandments where a, a sort of igneous uh, ballpoint pen comes out of the sky and <laughs> inscribes the Ten Commandments on the stone. It's a pretty good moment in cinematic history, I <laughs> And I don't know why they don't reissue it, but... Um, <laughs> Do you have any sense of how younger people, how to engage... You know, I also remember um, when I started uh, looking at the Bible from a more scholarly point of view. Actually, I did that on the internet um, because they have all these wonderful interlinear translations now where you can look at the Greek and you can look at the translation and you can they're hyperlinked to various useful articles. And so obviously younger generations might be encountering the Bible in the future in this way. I mean, do you have a sense of to what extent that might help to rehabilitate? Well, I think it'd be much better if we had a digest of the Bible, mm. cut out a fair bit of it altogether, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> cut out chronicles, cut out, uh, cut, uh, cut out kings really too, and, and put together some of the wonderful stories of the Bible in this, in this digest. And then I think you could find it a, a fascinating read. Um, but um, that's not the sort of thing that people uh, feel happy about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry we have run out of time, um, but um, Andrew and Lloyd will be available afterwards um, at the signing table. Uh, they'll be signing books. You can pose your questions also. Um, and um, uh, it's been my very great pleasure to be here on stage with these two esteemed gentlemen. Um, I um before you um before before you go I'll let you know Andrew, Andrew is doing another event tomorrow in the ASB theatre he'll be in conversation that's at 1:30 uh, if you'd like to hear more from him uh, and um, thank you so much for being here. Well done. Our 2017 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.